It's Thursday night. The year is 1995. On the massive box TV in my childhood home, Seinfeld is airing in the typical time slot. Must see TV. George. <laughs> there is no DVR streaming. You plop down in front of the TV and watch your favorite TV show when it airs. What a concept. No rewinds. Hey, sorry to bother you so late. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> um, did you get any of those sponges? In the episode that's airing, The Sponge, George Costanza is having a minor crisis, as always. What? He's especially worked up about the fact that he might miss some makeup sex. Let me just explain something. You see, this is, this is not just a weekend routine. You know? uh-huh. I'm on the verge of makeup sex here. You know about makeup sex? Oh, yeah, yeah. George, I know all about makeup sex, and I'm really sorry. Meanwhile, over in Norway... The episode airs sometime later, and I imagine audience members standing up from the couch and saying, wait a minute, what was that phrase George used? Because makeup sex got a very quirky Norwegian translation. Makeup sex got translated literally as the word for makeup as in beauty products. Rafael Motomayor is a journalist who reports on TV and film translation. And the word they used was sminke sex, which just, again, literally mean like, Fashion makeup sex. Sminke meaning makeup. Just the actual word for makeup. And this wasn't just a one-off mistake. It just never got corrected on TV. Uh, they just kept running with it because it was just too late. They already put it out. They already had a bunch of episodes with that translation. So they just kept it and people grew up watching that and they just started using it in their normal day-to-day life. To this day, some people in Norway say sminka sex to refer to makeup sex, even though they know it's a mistranslation. That's how culturally impactful film and TV translations can be. Man, I love that story. I feel for the translators, though. If you think about it at the time, it's not like they could just look up a translation of new slang on the internet. It was the 90s. At the time, there were a lot less TV shows than there are now, and nothing was on demand the way it is today, and translations were hard to come by. Now, things have completely changed. You've got an explosion of new TV shows dropping in massive amounts on Netflix, Disney+, Hulu, Discovery, the list goes on. And you can watch many of your favorite shows in a variety of different languages, subtitled, dubbed, or in closed captions. All that demand for more, more, more is great, It means people are enjoying and absorbing creative work from cultures all over the world. But imagine what that means for the translators. They've weathered so much industry change while getting more and more work and less time to do an already difficult job. So there's things that are bound to be lost in translation. And at the same time, that is happening because people are actually watching things that they never did before. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Today, we're exploring the wonderful world of film and TV localization and how these translations affect our experience as viewers, even when we don't notice them. From Crooked Media and Duolingo, I'm Amadal Yakbar, and this is Radiolingo. Today's episode, Lights, Camera, Translate. So before we dive in, let's get a handle on a few definitions. Localization is the term now used for adapting a TV show or film for a different country, and it goes so far beyond just translation. It can be broken down into three separate processes, subtitling, dubbing, and closed captioning. I know, I sort of clumped all three as the same in my head as well, but Raphael explained to me that these are each a unique piece of the localization pie. Subtitling is essentially the text that you see on screen whenever you watch a 
a title in a foreign language. Most of us are familiar with this. But what's important about subtitling is that it essentially translates a foreign film into a script written in your language. The translation is the best approximation of what was said in the original. There's no such thing as a perfect translation. Dubbing requires a new script too, but it also requires an additional process besides localizing a script. Which is getting actors in another language to re-record every piece of dialogue, every line of dialogue to that local language. And because they want the voices to somewhat match the mouth movements of what's going on on screen, the dubbing script might look very different from a subtitling script for the same film. So the dubbing process is a totally separate beast than the subtitling process. And then there's closed captioning. Closed captioning is, is the third sort of branch of localization that's used mostly for hard-of-hearing people. And it includes lines of dialogue, but it also includes sound effects and even music. Closed captioning on a film or TV show looks like subtitles, but with more information. Stranger Things Season 4 had some really evocative ones, like ominous synth music plays and tentacle slither wetly, which really paints a picture for folks who can't hear how scary those monsters are. Because of this, and because of certain FCC guidelines, the closed captions follow the dubbing script as opposed to the subtitling script, so one film's subtitles could potentially look quite different than the same film's closed captions. You can already see how complicated it all is. When Raphael wrote his first article about localization for the entertainment website Vulture, he was relatively naive as well. He had no idea what the process of translating a film looked like, or even how many translations certain streamers provided. And so that's what he set out to do, explain to readers what this all looks like. But when he approached different distribution companies like Netflix and Hulu and whatnot, it was hard to get answers. There's really no standard policy. Quite a lot of the companies don't really, uh, they don't even know the number of, of titles that they have with subtitles, or just why it varies from title to title, to, for language to language. It was quite hard to get an answer for it. When Rafael says titles, he means movies and TV shows. There are so many movies and shows translated in so many different languages that some companies weren't really keeping track. Every company does things differently. Every company has different standards or things that they want to focus on, whether that's formatting, like how many characters you can have on screen at any given second, to what words they want translated or localized. For example, different companies may require different font sizes for subtitles, which affects the number of words you can have on screen at any given moment. So if you have that limitation, that means that you have to summarize what the, the, the original line of dialogue is saying. So that's when you go into issues of what do you cut out? There, there's bound to be some context that you miss, otherwise the subtitle takes too much space away from the screen. But if the translated summary of the original material isn't quite right, that can change the actual narrative of the show. This particular issue came to a head in 2021, when the Korean show Squid Game exploded in the US and all over the world. You've probably seen it, but if not, it's about a brutal game show that exploits class differences and poverty. It's a distinctly Korean story, but it spoke to the struggle of everyday people everywhere. And almost immediately, viewers fluent in Korean started criticizing the quality of the English subtitles, dubs, and closed captioning. One translation in particular missed some of the important nuances of the original. 
One character, Han Minyo, she's like the chaotic auntie character played by Kim Jo Rung, was overly simplified in the translation. The big mistake with Squid Game was one character who said that she never bothered to study, but she she's smart. Uh, mean that she is not formally educated because she didn't want to. She just uh, she just has street smarts kind of. But the original Korean says something about the lines of. I am very smart. I just never got a chance to be educated. She's pleading with other characters not to underestimate her because of her class and lack of formal education. Which was closer to the show's theme of class and inequality and this sort of uh, social commentary that made the show popular in addition to just a bunch of death games. So the original line cemented those ideas, whereas the English translation just completely changed the, the arc for that character and made her lazy rather than just devoid of opportunities. It's a small change, but illustrates the compromises translators have to make all the time. It made me curious about the flip side. What about when English films are released on streaming and need to be translated to a huge global audience? So I reached out to a screenwriter friend of mine. Did you ever like have this feeling like, oh, this is going to be translated into other languages? Like, did you ever think about that when you were writing it? You know, it's so funny. I didn't at all. <laughs> like, I did not at all, which is very naive. This is Kirsten King calling us from Los Angeles. Hollywood baby. She and her co-writer Casey Rackham recently wrote a movie called Crush for Hulu. In the before times, I mean before streaming, it was primarily major films and a few really popular network TV shows that were being localized in other countries. But Kirsten and Casey are both relatively new filmmakers, fresh faces. And it's incredible to think about their film being translated into different languages and being seen all over the world. It was a new experience for her. I think I honestly assumed that it would be translated by a computer and like put on. I didn't know that this was people's like a person's job, which of course it is, because, you know, that translator has to like think about the heart of the scene and try and translate it. And a computer cannot do that as well, I'm sure. Crush is a coming-of-age rom-com about a love triangle between three high school girls, Paige, Gabriella, and AJ. It's a queer love story that takes place in a quintessentially American movie setting, a high school. Queer storylines in American movies have been banned in some international markets. And Kirsten and Casey wrote it in a way where queerness was the center. You can't translate around it. Casey and I took a lot of care in terms of the language we chose because I think for queer people, the language you choose is incredibly important to respecting their identity and who they are as a person um, and really respecting their humanity. When the movie came out, the response was great. And Kirsten and Casey were really happy with all the queer fan love Crush received. I can go on Tumblr and like see all these gifts of our leads kissing. And it's just, it's very cute. It's everything we wanted it to be. But like she mentioned, this was her first time writing something for a global audience. She hadn't thought about how the film had been translated until I reached out. And that got her thinking about how all the very specific language they chose when writing the film got translated. One example is her and Casey's use of the word queer. We use it somewhat interchangeably if they also identify as gay or if they also identify as bisexual. That word queer, it, it is intentional because I do think it includes a larger umbrella of, of people. It includes a larger umbrella of gender presentations. I think that queer is just, it's a larger umbrella term that Casey and I chose because 
One is how we both identify, and two, it feels more accurate to the characters we wanted to portray. So, so knowing that the translation in other countries could be just gay or just bisexual, um, and not have not have a word that matches queer in that reclaimed way, that kind of worries me a little bit, honestly. It's a choice that the writers felt made the story more authentic. Queer also has a unique history in American English. It used to be a pretty derogatory term, but it has been reclaimed. That nuance might not easily translate. So, she and I decided to do a little digging into the translations. I asked her to pick a scene. Well, I looked up one scene where I know they say queer, because I know this movie, I've seen it like 14 times now. No, 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 okay, no. There are plenty of other queer options for you to date at this school, please. Dylan, the best friend character, says there are plenty of other queer options for you in this school. And queer is used intentionally there because we're walking down the hallway and we're talking about the umbrella of identity. What about Chantel? I mean, she's like a cool, Wiccan lesbian. We're talking about lesbians. We're talking about gender queer people. No way, dude. I definitely don't have enough followers to date them. We're not just talking about gay people, so, um, but it is translated to say gay. When Kirsten and I pulled up the scene, we noticed Hulu doesn't offer a dub, only Spanish subtitles. And the line was translated to say gay instead of queer, which in Spanish is queer. It took a lot more digging to find the dubbed version. And I eventually figured out that it can only be found on Disney Plus in international markets. But in order to access the other translations, I had to use a VPN, virtual private network, and stream it from an internet address in Spain. Then, things got way more complicated than I expected. There are actually two types of Spanish represented, European Spanish and Latin American Spanish. Each one has different voice actors and different scripts. And each of those dubs is different from Hulu's Spanish subtitles, where queer was translated as gay. In Spain's dub, they actually do translate queer as queer. But what's strange is, the subtitles don't reflect the dub. Instead, they say LGBT, no Q. In the Latin American dub, queer is translated as lesbicas, lesbian. And the subtitles are different there too. They drop the adjective and just say opciones. So by my count, there are actually five different translations that I know of for the Spanish version of Crush. It does bum me out because I do think that all that care, because Casey and I had so many conversations about identity while writing this. Like we probably had more conversations on identity and their star signs than we did anything else. <laughs> so, you know, knowing that that isn't, isn't being reflected 100% how we imagined it is weird. I watch a lot of TV that has cultural specificity. Shows like Rami and Jane the Virgin and Insecure. The cultural specificity is one of those things that makes those shows so good. It's a translator's job to do justice to the original work. And knowledge about cultural context, not just language and grammar, is essential when knowing how to localize something. It's a tough job. Just think about all the challenges we've talked about so far. You need someone with a very particular set of skills. Multilingual, smart, unbelievably fast. Someone who's got the guts to bend the rules occasionally, to translate something while keeping the soul of the original script in mind. That's the job. You need Super Translator. It's always going to be hard to find enough people like this, and right now, it's especially challenging. With globalization and, and with people being way more open to international titles now than they ever were before, 
there's more demand to bring those titles to audiences that are now hungry for those. And so that means that there's not enough translators that specialize in subtitling and dubbing to meet the demands. So all that demand falls on a small group of highly skilled people, and we're going to meet one of them after the break. You have to work very fast and uh, very well. This is Andrea Rayanu. She's the vice president of global subtitling at Ayuno SDI, a localization company based in Los Angeles. If you had like a month to translate 45 minutes and that would be the only thing that you did, probably that would be the perfect translation. But usually you only have nine to 10 hours to do it or something like that. Especially nowadays, everything is just like, in my company, we're turning around uh, shows in eight hours, which is crazy. Andrea has been in the industry for over 20 years. She's fluent in English, French, and Romanian. And she's well-versed in the difficult job film translators take on. If the language is a big language, then you would have only one person responsible of that language and of all the translations of all the shows, of everything that you do for that language. If the language is like a smaller in volume, then you would have somebody overseeing maybe two or three languages, let's say the Baltic languages, that would be a person that oversees two or three languages. One person to manage two or three languages is a lot of responsibility. And these people have to ensure that everything is done absolutely perfectly. I mean, it's very aspirational, but that's the goal, you know? And the protocols they have to follow. My God, the protocols. The rules that you have to follow for each client. Do you put a space before a question mark? In some languages you do, in some languages you don't. Is there a space before the ellipses? Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, how do you treat songs? Are you going to subtitle songs in that language or not? Assuming that you do subtitle the song. Dialogue, double subtitles. Uh, when players refer speaking, does it have a hyphen? Does it not Andrea can tell you how a film or show gets translated from soup to nuts. The first step? Often it's creating what's called a pivot script. Pivot scripts first translate a film from any foreign language, Spanish, Korean, Hindi, you name it, into a common language, which in many cases means English. This English script, rather than the original, then serves as a reference for other foreign language translators when they localize it into their own language. This kind of makes me think of a game of telephone, surely it can result in some mistranslation. And Andrea says it's a controversial process. People tend to uh, believe that maybe they're right to a certain extent that, oh, this is going to be not good because you're translating from Spanish to um, English and then something is lost in that translation and then you translate from English to Korean and a lot of it, even more, is going to be lost. That's more or less true, but at the same time, it's impossible to find a large pool of translators who can localize hundreds and hundreds of hours in all these language combinations. It's not easy to find people who fluently speak, say, both Mandarin and Portuguese or both Russian and Korean who want this job and can match the demanding parameters of the studio. So pivot scripts to English are more useful to a wider range of translators, which then helps films be translated more efficiently and more widely. 
You might be wondering, why can't we just have a computer do the entire translation? Why do we need people at all? The short answer is, computers are just not smart enough yet. You need a person who is creative and a good problem solver. Take this example from season six of Game of Thrones. FYI, if you haven't watched the show, I'm about to spoil something for you. But also, you're like 10 years behind, so that's on you, frankly. In the very first season of Game of Thrones, there was this character, Hodor. He's a very tall man who only says his name, Hodor, Hodor, with a smile on his face. In season six, we finally learned that this gentle giant's name means something. Through a complex flash-forward sequence that I'm not going to get into, we find out that Hodor is short for the phrase, hold the door. If you've seen the show, you're probably hit with this, oh my god moment, justice for Hodor. But for translators, Rafael Motomoyor told me it was a huge challenge. Translators around the world started to panic because they now had to figure out what Hodor means in their own languages. For five seasons, translators had a straightforward situation where there was a character named Hodor. It was his name. Hodor spent seasons just Hodoring in the background. But now, all of a sudden, they had to make the word Hodor mean something close to the English phrase, hold the door, but translated into their own language. A near impossible task. A computer could never. The result? Some of them sound okay and it kind of makes sense. Some of them really found contrived ways to work around it to kind of make it sound similar, but not perfect. In Turkish, the phrase that was used uh, means stay there. That's orada dur, meaning hold there. And in French, uh, again, a rather short and simple sentence, hold the door, becomes don't let them get outside. That's, excuse my French, pas au dehors. Which just becomes too long, and there's not really a way that it shortens down to hodor. So depending on the language you're watching, hodor's name could take on a whole new meaning that wasn't necessarily intended by the filmmakers. Thinking about this Hodor situation, I imagine there's many, many more like it. It's clear that no matter what, something is compromised when localizing a foreign film. It's just a part of the process. Solving the Hodor name thing required a certain level of nuance and out-of-the-box thinking on the part of translators. They have uh, all the freedom to do whatever they think that's necessary to just express it in the best possible way. There are some committees and some oversight on this. The translators do their pass on the script, and then they go to a quality control specialist who checks for all kinds of errors. Quality control may clean up and catch errors, but generally the translators are trusted to make the best adjustments possible. And many times it works out great. I'm thinking now of an example which I thought was a brilliant uh, translation in Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, the Quentin Tarantino movie starring Uma Thurman, amongst others. There's that joke that Uma Thurman is telling with the tomatoes, the papa tomato and the mama tomato, that they're walking, the baby tomatoes falls behind, and they say, catch up. I mean, that's very difficult to, to, to translate in any language. And I saw the French translation, which was the papa lemon and the mama lemon were walking. And then the papa lemon told the baby lemon, presse toi, because presse citron means like um, a lemonade. You know, so instead of catch up, it was uh, presse toi. Presse citron means lemonade, and presse toi means hurry up, which is a great translation, right? A relatively harmless change that was probably super satisfying to the French-speaking audience. As you can imagine, though, humor is especially hard to translate. Here's Raphael again. Comedies have such a hard job in terms of 
translating jokes from one language to the other that sometimes what uh, the translators for the dubbing version do is just change a bunch of the jokes to something that, that is funnier in their own language. So I make the example of uh, the Shrek movies, which in Spanish essentially toss aside every single joke of the original script and just make them from scratch. And the result is uh, completely different. And in my opinion, because I grew up watching those, uh, a funnier experience. So it's not unusual to make big changes like this when localizing a film. The translators are trying to make the experience enjoyable to a new audience in a different country. And sometimes that requires more than just a one-to-one translation. I have a perfect example. For years, many of my Arab friends told me about this cartoon they grew up with, Captain Majid. I had never heard of it. Every single friend I spoke to said they believed their entire childhood that this was an Arabic cartoon with an Arab soccer star leading an Arab team to victory. It was their favorite show. But Captain Majid was not an Arab show. The original was a Japanese anime called Captain Tsubasa. The dubbers took it upon themselves to change the locations and names to be familiar to Arabic speakers. They did such a good job that their work was invisible to the Arabic-speaking kids who grew up watching it, and they believed it was made for them alone. This Captain Majid example shows how there can be something generative to this process of localization. A translated cultural object can take on a life of its own and become meaningful to a whole new audience. Think back to the movie Shrek and its Spanish dubs, or in a small way, Seinfeld's Norwegian translation of makeup sex. So after learning all this, how can you not appreciate the translators? Even with all that work to be done in a short time, the small pool of qualified professionals and limitations that cannot be subverted, translators are still very good at their jobs. Obviously, they're getting a lot right because the fans are so passionate and amazingly cross-cultural. In my research for this story, I came upon the most incredible fandoms. Nigerian Bollywood festivals, Latin American anime concerts in Spanish and Japanese, South Asian fans fervently commenting on Turkish drama stars' Instagram pages, And who can forget about the United Nations of Korean drama fans? The reality is that TV and film aren't slowing down anytime soon. In the meantime, the localization industry is busy making lemons into lemonade, or at least trying to catch up. Radiolingo is an original podcast from Duolingo and Crooked Media. I'm Amadel Yakber, your host, writer, and producer. From Crooked Media, executive producers are Sandy Gerard and Katie Long. From Duolingo, executive producers are Laura Maycumber and Timothy Shea. This episode was produced and co-written by Mary Knopf and story edited by Lacey Roberts. Our associate producer and fact checker is Brian Samuel. Our theme and original music is by Carly Bond, with mixing, sound design, and additional music by Hannes Brown. Additional research and production support from Crooked Media's Ari Schwartz and Duolingo's Cindy Blanco, Emily Chu, Alexa Fernandez, and Hope Wilson. Special thanks to Crooked Media's Danielle Jensen and Gabriella Leverett, and Duolingo's Michaela Crone, Monica Earle, and Sam Dalsimar for promotional support. Mm-hmm.